You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. come to the end of the year, let me just take this chance to say thank you to all of those who labor in the music ministry. It was lovely to hear such a collection of songs today, one of which is about a thousand years old and one of which was written about ten years ago, and uh, it's good to see that there's continuity across the ages among the people of God. So thank you very much to our singers and our musicians. We really uh, could not do it without you guys. Now if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. This morning we're going to read verses 5 through 9, Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. And if you're able to physically do so, I would urge you to stand as we hear God's word. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is God's word. Please be seated. Father, help us to have a firm grasp through this passage of what is going on in our world and what will happen. And let us see Jesus who for a little while was lower than the angels, but now stands exalted over all things. Lord, I pray the gospel would be clear, and I pray your spirit would meet with us now through your word. And Father, I pray that those of us who do not know you would hear the truth and that we would come to faith this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If God exists, and if God is all-powerful, and if God is all-good, then why do terrible things happen in our world? This is one of the most famous philosophical questions, the so-called problem of evil. And I think this is a question we all ponder at times, especially when we experience personal tragedy or when we see terrible evil things happening in our world today. And friends, we have seen immense tragedy in recent years. Remember the Indian Ocean tsunami, or Hurricanes Katrina, or Harvey, the earthquake in Haiti about 10 years ago, the earthquake in Morocco just a few months ago, the winter storm a few years back, or the pandemic. And beyond these tragic natural disasters, we also see tremendous evil in our world today. Our world is filled with violence. Horrific carnage continues daily in the Ukraine and in Israel. And if wars weren't enough, there are rumors of wars in Guyana, in South America, in Taiwan. Christians are persecuted worldwide by autocrats and followers of other religious uh, perspectives. Christians are jailed and killed worldwide for their testimony about Jesus. Violence and injustice abound. And evil isn't just out there somewhere. Our own society, our own cities filled with it. Last Wednesday, a 17-year-old girl was walking to work, carrying a bag outside the Galleria. Someone attacked her, tried to steal her bag, and violently murder her. This is not an isolated incident. Violent crime and murder have skyrocketed in our city and across our country. Likewise, moral anarchy continues unabated. This week, multiple officials at one local school down the street 
were arrested for scandalous sexual misconduct. And one prominent national Christian leader admitted that he had given false prophecies to manipulate a woman to commit adultery with him. When we see this wickedness among church and school leaders, is it any wonder that our society is so askew in its views on gender and sexuality? And as all this evil abounds, we may say, where is God? Why does this continue? Can we really have any hope in this dark world? Now, friends, today as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, we're going to see that, yes, evil abounds in our world, and we're going to see why. But we're also going to see that we can have hope because Jesus has entered this dark world. And Jesus has died for our sins. And Jesus now stands exalted over the cosmos. And Jesus is soon going to set all things right. And that's what we're going to see today in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. This morning we're going to see three points. First, because of the fall, the dominion of man became the dominion of angels. Second, because of his death, Jesus has received a supreme dominion over everything. And third, while the Son's dominion is presently contested, someday very soon he will crush all evil. Let's start with our first point. Because of the fall, the dominion of man became the dominion of angels. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in Hebrews chapter 1, we saw that our author built a lengthy theological argument. First, he compared God's revelation in the Old Testament to God's revelation in Jesus. And then he compared the angels to Jesus. And in both cases, we saw that Jesus is better. And all of that led last week to the beginning of chapter 2, where we saw the point of all of this, which was a pastoral exhortation, a warning that because Jesus is better than the Old Testament, because Jesus is better than God's law, which was transmitted by the angels, we had better listen to Jesus. Because God took his Old Testament revelation very seriously. He severely judged every sin against it. Well, if Jesus is better than that, and he is, how much more will God judge us if we do not listen to Jesus? That was the argument at the beginning of chapter 2. But now we come to the middle of chapter 2 and we are back in a theological section. And our author picks up where he left off in chapter 1 as he again compares Jesus to the angels. And because it's been a few weeks since we looked at Jesus being compared to the angels most recently, let's remind ourselves quickly of what our author said about Jesus and the angels in chapter 1. In chapter 1, our author quoted several passages from the Old Testament in which God speaks about angels and in which God speaks about Jesus. Now, what did God say about the angels? That they worship Jesus, they serve Jesus, and they help Jesus' people. But what did God say about the Son, about Jesus? That He is the King, that He is God's answer to the rebellion of this wicked world, that He is Himself God, that He is the eternal Creator, that He now sits at the Father's right side, mediating the Father's rule to this world. In every respect, Jesus is better than the angels. But now in chapter 2, verse 5, we see another contrast between Jesus and the angels. As we read, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. But what is not true here about the angels is true about Jesus. God has subjected the world to come to Jesus. That's the big idea we're going to talk about this morning. Rulership. Rulership over this world and rulership over the next world. 
Now you might say, well, why are we going to talk about the world to come? That hasn't really been a big idea so far in this book. And yet our author here calls it the world to come of which we are speaking. When has our author been talking about the world to come in Hebrews? Well, some of the passages in chapter 1 that he cited from the Old Testament have to do with the future world. For instance, look back at Hebrews 1 verse 10. This is a quotation from the 102nd Psalm. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. In the middle of this passage about the eternality and creative power of Jesus, we read that creation is going to be changed, just like somebody changes their clothes. This is a reference to the fact that one day, this universe is going to end. 2 Peter 3 says, On the coming of the day of God, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friends, someday Jesus is going to call an end to the way things are, and he's going to make a new creation, the world to come. In the same way, Hebrews 1 verse 13 quotes Psalm 110, where the Father says to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We need to know a time is coming when Jesus is going to vanquish all of his enemies, when evil will be forever defeated. And that also is talking about the world to come. So our author has been speaking about the world to come. And as this book continues, he'll say a lot more about it. In chapter 4, he's going to talk about our rest, resurrection, life, and the new creation. In chapters 11, 12, and 13, he will speak about New Jerusalem, the eternal city. So our author is indeed speaking about the world to come. And here in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, That world to come will not be subjected to the angels. They might say, well, what does that mean and why should I care? We're going to talk about the angels more in just a minute. But before we talk about the angels further, let's see what our author now says in verses 6 through 8. And again, he quotes from the Old Testament. And what he says here has brought smiles to many faces over the years. As he says, it has been testified somewhere. This is a sentiment to which many of us can probably relate. How often do we who love the Bible think of the words of some passage but forget the reference? And we say, well, I know it's in here somewhere. That sounds like what our author is saying here. Now, it's possible he has some theological reason for quoting the Old Testament in this strange way. Many authors have proposed all kinds of theories. We can't know for sure why he writes it like this. Maybe he was truly forgetful. But what we can know is that he quotes here from Psalm 8, which is a beautiful psalm that praises God for his kindness towards humanity and for the exalted role that God has given mankind in his cosmic plan. If you've got a Bible, look at Psalm 8 briefly. Psalm 8, beginning in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. As David looks at the marvels of creation, he thinks, why should God care about little creatures like us? Why should God love people? Why should God exalt us as he has and entrusted so much to our care? For God has trusted us with his natural creation and with all animal life. That's what the creation account says in Genesis 1 and 2. God has made us his special creation. God has tasked us with an important role in his plan. In Genesis 2, we learn about what man is. Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. Friends, we are just dust. 
But God has ennobled the dust. He has breathed life into us. And Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God made us in his own image. That means we reflect him in some ways, not visibly, but we reflect certain characteristics of God. Like God, we reason and speak. Like God, we engage in skilled labor. Like God, who exists in the unending community of the Trinity, it's not good for us to be alone. We are meant to be in a community. And God created us to be like himself, to rule. God made us to be his deputy rulers over the material creation. Genesis 1.26 says that God made man to exercise dominion over all life on earth. We are to rule. Not absolutely. God sets limits to our rule. Remember the tree we were not to eat? And in fact, the first people were told, don't even eat anything but vegetables. Everybody was vegan, I guess. But God's design was for us to rule, and in so doing, to reflect his superior rulership to all living things on earth. And so we are distinct from the animal kingdom. Our uniqueness was marked out from the beginning. We have been set over and above all earthly life. Indeed, God has made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honor. We have been put over the works of his hands. He has put all things under our feet. We are the summit of God's visible creation. We were entrusted with a great dominion and a vast responsibility. But what happened? We fell. Adam was to master the animals. An animal mastered him. The serpent lied to Adam and Eve, and sin entered the world. We say, well, sin, you know, whatever. I do what I want. It's no big deal. It's not hurting anybody. Hey, you want to know how bad sin is? Let's find out. Who is the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve? Revelation chapters 12 and 20 say the ancient serpent is the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The serpent was Satan, and Satan stumbled us into sin, and the result was God's curse, judgment, condemnation, death. And as part of God's judgment, it seems that God has allowed Satan to usurp and exercise dominion over this world. That's why we read in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now don't misunderstand, Satan is not God's equal. Satan is not a divine being, but his power over this world is godlike in many respects. That's why Satan can make this obscene offer to Jesus in Matthew 4, 8. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. And notice that Jesus doesn't dispute that Satan can make this offer. Satan has the ability to turn the nations in any way that he wants. And from that, friends, we see that after the fall, Satan dominates this ruined and fallen world. In fact, this world is not under the rulership of Satan only. Look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, if you've got an old translation of the Bible, it may not say the sons of God there. It may say the sons of Israel. There's a textual variant in Deuteronomy 32. But it's very likely the original wording is just what the ESV says, the sons of God. Now, who are the sons of God? Well, in the Old Testament, that's the angels. And Deuteronomy 32 says, when God divided mankind, when God judged humanity's arrogance at Babel by splitting humanity into many nations, God assigned these nations to the sons of God. God turned the nations over to the angels. What kinds of angels? Well, we find out later in the Bible. In Daniel 10, 
God speaks about an evil angel connected to the Persian Empire. Ezekiel 28 speaks of an evil angel, possibly Satan, ruling over the nation of Tyre. Likewise, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks about principalities and powers, or the ESV translates this, rulers and authorities. These Greek words were political terms of the day that spoke about the rulers of particular geographical areas. And so Paul seems to be agreeing. Angels have authority over various nations. And when Paul uses these terms in the New Testament, he's always talking about fallen angels. Colossians 2.13 says, At the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Or Ephesians 6.12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. And so it seems that at Babel, when God judged the world, He turned the nations over to the demons as a punishment. Deuteronomy 32 continues saying, The demons founded the false religions of the world. Deuteronomy 32.17 says, People sacrificed to demons that were no gods. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10.20. I imply that what the pagans sacrificed, they offer to demons and not God. So what do we learn from all of this? You want to know why this world's in the shape it's in? Friends, God built a good world. God made mankind to be his deputy rulers. But we have sinned and corrupted ourselves again and again from the garden to Babel to now. And God is holy and righteous and he judges sin. And the sin of the human race led to horrific judgments. The corruption and ruin of this world, which includes turning this world over to demons for them to inflict more harm. It's judgment on our wickedness. And so while Hebrews chapter 2 verse 5 says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Friends, we need to know that our current world has been subjected to the angels. And with Satan piping the tune, which the world dances to, no wonder evil abounds like it does. No wonder there is moral anarchy. No wonder culture after culture opposes God and persecutes his people and rejoices in evil. No wonder we see unending war and violence. Now let me give two caveats here. First, angelic rule over the earth is not absolute. Just like our initial rule over the earth was not absolute, was but subject to God's good rule, so too is the demonic dominion over this world inferior to God's rulership. 1 John 4, 4 says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you have questions about that, read Job. Where Satan is not allowed to cause havoc on the world or in Job's life without God's express permission. While Satan and demons do rule over the world at present, God still reigns over them. 2 Thessalonians 2, twice speaks about God restraining evil. And so while this world has a lot of evil. Friends, it could be a lot worse than it is. But because God's good rule persists and is ultimate over all things, He constrains evil at present. Caveat number two, we have not lost our function as God's image bearers on earth. After the fall and after Babel in Genesis 9, God repeats that we are still made in His image. So we are still to carry out the functions that God has given us on this earth. But the fall has made us, in our natural condition, slaves of sin and minions to Satan. Ephesians 2.1 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Friends, that's Satan. And so what had originally been man ruling on earth under God directly is now complicated by the presence of additional evil rulers who reign over unregenerate humanity. And so because of the fall, the dominion of man became the dominion of angels. But this leads now to our second point, which is that because of his death, Jesus has received supreme dominion over all things. The fall led to ruin and chaos, but God and His great love didn't just abandon us to the awfulness of judgment. He has intervened in this world to set us free, to triumph over evil, and to restore things to how they ought to be. And that's what we see as we return now to Hebrews chapter 2. 
We'll skip the rest of verse 8 for a moment, but look now at verse 9. But we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the first time the name Jesus appears in this book. Up until now, he has been called the Son. But now Jesus' name appears, and this is a great place for Jesus' name to appear, because here the incarnation comes into view. The truth that we celebrate this season and at every Christmas, that God the Son took on true humanity, that he was born, that he lived and died as a real man, Jesus. It's an amazing mystery. That the one acclaimed in chapter 1, verse 2, as the heir of all things, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, that the one who created and sustains all things became one of us, it's almost incomprehensible. But it's true. The Son, who is better than the angels, freely chose out of love and in obedience to his Father to become lower than the angels for a little while, verse 9 says. Now notice that our author now is going to use the language of Psalm 8, which talked about our role in creation, to talk about Jesus. And you know, when Psalm 8 speaks about humanity, it says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. If you're like me, you're amazed by that. You think about an angel, you're like, wow, angels are glorious and powerful. We are probably vastly lower than them in God's sight. But Psalm 8 says, no, actually, we're just a little lower than the angels. We're in a far better position in God's order than we might realize. That is an elevating truth for us. But these same words take on a different meaning for God the Son. They don't signify His elevation, but His profound humility. Because this one who fully shares the divine nature, who is unbounded by time, space, power, or knowledge, who is endlessly good and righteous, humbled himself by becoming human, which Psalm 8 tells us means he became lower than the angels. God the Son willingly made himself less than all those angels that he infinitely outranks. And more than that, he entered this darkened world under the dominion of demons. Jesus did that to shine his bright light into this dark world. John 1.5 says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus humbled himself in this amazing way. But while he did that, we're told that this reduction was only for a little while. Now, if you paid really close attention, you'll notice that this term, a little while, in Hebrews 2, is not what it says in Psalm 8. say, why is that? Is our author misquoting the psalm? No. The reason for the discrepancy is that our English Bibles have translated Psalm 8 from the Hebrew text directly, but the author to the Hebrews is quoting Psalm 8 from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And when the Septuagint translated Psalm 8, it interpreted the Hebrew phrase a little lower to mean lower for a little while. So our author is not misquoting the psalm. He is accurately quoting the psalm as he has access to it. But the discrepancy reflects an ancient translational ambiguity. But this ambiguity is something God uses providentially here to show us an important truth. Friends, God is sovereign over everything even to the way the Old Testament was translated 2,200 years ago by Greek speakers. Here, this ambiguity in the way that this was translated in the Septuagint teaches us an important truth. Jesus' reduction in status is not eternal. Although Jesus is now and forever human, he is not forever lower than the angels. That state has come to an end. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Jesus now is higher than the angels. But for the moment, let's focus on this idea that Jesus humbled himself by coming into this world. Why did he do this? Well, look at the end of verse 9. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus came into this world as the ultimate expression of God's grace. Grace means unearned kindness. Friends, we have not earned God's kindness. We are sinners by nature and choice. Our first parents were rebels in the garden, We've seen the terrible results of their sin, and we, their heirs, follow in their footsteps. We are born slaves of sin. We sin throughout our lives. That's what Jesus says in John 8. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And Paul says in Romans 6.16, you were once slaves of sin, which leads to death. That's what we've earned by our sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But instead of giving us what we earned, what we've merited, God gives us something we have not earned. He gives his kindness. Romans 6.23 continues. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has shown us grace by sending Jesus into this world to taste death. You know, at Christmas we think of Jesus as a baby. Jesus was born a baby so that he could grow up and die. Jesus entered this world to be our sacrifice, to live the perfect obedient life that we have all failed to live and to die the death that we deserved, so that he might stand in our shoes and we might stand in his. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's God's plan, what Luther called the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin on himself and bears its burden and pays its penalty, And now the Father sees us in Jesus' position with all his righteousness being credited to the believer. See, Jesus tasted death on the cross. It is the ultimate articulation of God's love and grace. And we're told that he did this for everyone. Now, what does this mean? Well, let's talk first about what it doesn't mean. This is not teaching that everybody on earth throughout history is going to be saved. On the contrary, 2 Thessalonians 2 says there are people who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Friends, not everyone is going to be saved. Unbelievers will be lost to God's wrath forever. So this verse is not teaching universal salvation. So what is it teaching them? In some ways, what God has done in Christ has impacted the whole world. And so John 1.29 calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 John 2.2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There is a sense in which the Bible declares that Christ's death was because God so loved the world. That's John 3.16, right? And yet not everyone is saved. Why? Why? Our church's teaching statement explains it like this. Christ's death is sufficient to purchase all people and thereby fully atone for the sin of the entire world. Therefore, he can rightly be proclaimed to be the Savior of the world. However, Christ's death is efficient to atone only for those who believe. And that's what we see here. Jesus tasted death for everyone, but that does not lead to, eternal, or to universal salvation. We see that later in this chapter. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. It says, For surely it's not angels that he helps. Jesus' death did not save the angels. Angels cannot be saved because of Jesus' death. Or Hebrews 2, 16 continues, But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Who's this talking about? It's not talking about ethnic descent. It's not talking about Israelites only. John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Ethnic descent from Abraham is meaningless. Galatians 3.7 says this, Know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The true offspring of Abraham are believers. And Hebrews 2 says that's who benefits from Jesus' death. Not everyone indiscriminately, but believers only. So Jesus' death is sufficient to atone for every sin committed by everyone. His death could theoretically benefit all people. But who actually receives those atoning benefits? Who is Jesus' death actually applied to? Believers only. As Matthew, 11, or Matthew 121 says, Jesus saved his people from their sins. As John 10.15 says, he laid down his life for the sheep. As Ephesians 5.25 says, he loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus died to save his people. But look what else Hebrews 2.9 says. 
that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Because as a direct result of the son's willingness to humble himself, to come to this earth and die, now he stands exalted. This is exactly what Paul says in Philippians 2.6. Though he was in the form of God, the son did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because Jesus died, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because the Son humbled himself, because he who was limitless in power took on the frailty of humanity. Because he who was immortal chose to become so authentically human that he tasted death. And not any death. Not death at a ripe old age. The horrible, shameful, degrading death on a cross. Because of that, display of love and obedience to the Father. The Father has highly exalted Jesus. Jesus has been given the highest name, the name above every name. Ephesians 1 says, The Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus didn't stay dead. The Father publicly vindicated him by raising him from the dead and returned him to heaven. And put him in a position of the grandest glory over everything. So the son returned to the glory he had before he came to the earth. But you know now something's changed. Because when Jesus descended to earth, he was God. When he returned to heaven, he returned as God. But now he is also man. And now this man Jesus stands highly exalted in heaven. 1 Peter 3.22 says, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Indeed, Jesus was lower than the angels only for a little while. He is lower than the angels no longer. Now, as a man, he stands above the angels. That's what Hebrews 1.4 says. He has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The angels and demons are now subject to Jesus, the God-man. And not only the angels. Ephesians 1.22 says the Father put all things under his feet. Jesus now wields supreme authority over everything in the cosmos. If you're in Hebrews 2, look back now at verse 8. We read the same thing. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Or as Jesus puts it in Matthew 28, 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Son rules over everything. That's how exalted he is. And here we see another point of contact with Psalm 8. Psalm 8 says, Originally man was crowned with glory and honor. That as God's deputy rulers, God had put everything in subjection under our feet. But we traded our glory for shame. We traded our honor for dishonor because of the false pleasures of sin. And we have been punished by being put under the demons. But what sinful man has lost, righteous Jesus, the God-man, has regained. And now he is crowned with glory and honor, a better glory and honor than Adam ever had. And all things have been put under Jesus' feet. He has a better dominion than Adam ever had. Jesus is better than Adam. Jesus is better than the angels. And in the exaltation of Jesus, we begin to see that God's good purposes are going to prevail. That God's intended order will be restored. Because we see a man, highly exalted, ruling over all things under the Father. Like it was always meant to be. And that man is Jesus. And so indeed, because of his death, Jesus has received supreme dominion over all things. But, while Christ reigns... Evil seems dominant in this world, doesn't it? Sin abounds and misery and death. How can that be true if Jesus reigns over all things? Well, that's what we're going to see now in our last point. The son's dominion is presently contested, but someday soon he's going to crush all evil. Look back at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. It ends like this. 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Every knee now does not bow to the name of Jesus, does it? In fact, if the Bible didn't tell us Jesus had total authority over everything, we wouldn't know it. So absolute is the moral anarchy around us. But friends, God is on his throne. Daniel 4.35 says, He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. God's reign is supreme. No one can check God, even the angels and demons. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones. See, friends, in heaven, God's will is absolute. Jesus' word is final. That's why he tells us to pray in Matthew 6, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because what happens in heaven above does not happen on this earth right now. Above, God's word is obeyed unquestioningly. Below, it is contested. But while God's rule is contested in this final world, while God's rule is contested in this fallen world, we need to know that ultimately God's plan and purpose will be the last word over everything that happens. Everything that happens will ultimately be in furtherance of God's plan and good purposes. Ephesians 1.11 says God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now you might say, well, I don't understand how all this evil stuff can be furthering God's good purposes. But when we read the Bible, many times we find this is exactly what happens, right? Evil people do terrible things and suffering ensues. But as a result of that, the evil event has put in place or positioned things that God will then use to redeem that situation and further his good purposes. That's what happened to Joseph. Remember him? His brothers sold him into slavery. And what's he say at the end of his life in Genesis 50 verse 20? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God allows evil, but he bends its effects across the course of eternity so that it will ultimately all advance his purposes. And what are God's good purposes that he's going to bring about? Ephesians 1.9 says this is his plan. For the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God is going to bring an end to the chaos of sin. He is going to reconcile all creation to himself in Christ. In the end, everything and everyone is either going to be renewed or condemned. And as part of that, God's plan is to form a people for his own possession, who he will grow in godliness and increasingly make us more like Christ. Romans 8.29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's his goal for us believing, friends. And it is in furtherance of these two goals, to sum everything up in Christ and to grow us in godliness, that God is at work in everything that happens. This is what Romans 8.28 means when it says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for the called according to his promise, or according to his purpose. Now, when we read that verse, often we think, well, this means everything is going to work out for my immediate good in life. That is not what this is saying. The next verse says our ultimate good is to be made more like Christ. And Christ suffered. We're going to talk about that a lot next week. In the same way, friends, God means to perfect us, to make us more like Jesus. And that means we should expect to face hardship because Jesus did. Paul says in Acts 14, it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. That's why James 1, 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And at the end of it, he says, The point of the trials is that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God doesn't promise us a life free from hardship, but God does promise that in everything that happens, He is at work in the world and in our lives. He is growing us in Christ's likeness, and He is advancing this world towards its ultimate destiny. God is at work in everything, furthering His plans. And yet he's opposed. There are powerful adversaries opposing him who want to retain their dominion over this world, who do not want to stand before Christ for final judgment, who do not want you to grow in godliness. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
Ephesians 6.12 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, we have powerful foes. They deceive the world. They mislead people into sin and ruin. In John 8, Jesus says that Satan is a murderer and the father of lies, and he and his minions are highly motivated in their rebellion. Because Revelation 12, 12 says, The devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. There is intense opposition to the rule of Jesus. That's why we see all the madness and wickedness in our world. And that's why we will see it more and more as time goes by. Because the demons know the clock is ticking on them. That the day is coming when Jesus will crush all rebellion. The day is coming when, as Revelation 11 says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The day is coming when, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. When, as Revelation 19 says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The day is coming when the words of Psalm 2 will come to pass. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then will come final judgment. Revelation 20 says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Yes, evil presently abounds. A day is coming when God's justice will abound all the more. When Satan and his demons will meet the wrath of God. And when all who have followed them will likewise face the horrific penalty of unrepentant sin. We said last week, hell is real. Many are going there. I, I plead with you, don't be among them. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. Turn aside from following self and sin. Turn in faith to Jesus. Believe that he is God who became a man, who came into this earth, who died on the cross as the sacrifice for your sins. Believe that He is alive and ruling and reigning today. Follow Him as your Lord and Savior and you will survive the coming judgment. But friend, if you don't, you will meet the wretched end of the wicked because God's justice is going to be done. But friends, for those of us who do believe, we will indeed see everything in subjection to Him. As Hebrews 2.8 says, we will see justice done and we will experience the full benefits of God's grace forever. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And the last chapter of the Bible says, We will see his face and reign forever and ever. Friends, a new world is coming where the will of God will be absolutely obeyed unquestioningly, where the people of God will live in joy together throughout the ages, enjoying the endless riches of God's grace forever. And as our passage began today in Hebrews 2.5, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. The coming world will be the uncontested dominion of Jesus Christ forever and ever. That is the solution to the problem of evil, friends. Yes, God is real. Yes, God is all-powerful. Yes, God is all-good. And yes, there is evil in our world. But the day is coming when evil will be brought to justice. Acts 17.31 says, He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Well, what should we take from this? Friends, we can trust Jesus no matter what happens. Let me give you four, four applications here to help us 
Fix our eyes on Jesus no matter what we see in this world or what we experience in life. Number one, remember that this world is not our home. Colossians 1.13 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. Yes, we all start under Satan's dominion. In Christ, we are set free. Our home is not this ruined world. We have been given a new citizenship, Philippians 3 says. So don't hope in the things of this world. This world is passing away. Keep your hope in heaven. Look to eternal things because they last forever. Second, remember that Jesus is a present help in the face of everything we encounter, and he is merciful to his people. 2 Peter 2.9 says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Friends, he will deal with evil, and he invites us in the meanwhile to bring our problems to him and cast our cares before him because he hears our prayers. He is at work in our lives and in this world. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you're facing a hard thing, friend, turn to the Lord in prayer. Third, let us remember who we are, that we are not alone, even though we see the terrible things that happen around us. 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And this isn't just an individual promise. This isn't saying, you're a child of God and I'm a child of God. No, it says we are the children of God. There's a collective aspect to God's plan for us. And that's why the author to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, we must regularly meet together to encourage each other as we see the day drawing near. He says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This world is evil. We need help to persevere in godliness, and that's why God has given us each other in the community. So let us lean into that. And finally, friends, as we face hard things, let us remember what our destiny is. It's to inherit eternal life alongside Christ, to share in his victory. For Jesus, who has prophesied to trample on Satan's head in Genesis 3, makes this promise in Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Friends, alongside Jesus, we will reign forever and ever. And in the end, victory will be ours because victory is his. Because Jesus has won at the cross and he will reign forevermore. So do not let the evil of this world drive you to despair. Instead, remember the words of Christ in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world.